Hello and welcome to Be The Wolf. I am your host, Jenea Barnes. Many people struggle to be the fullest, biggest, truest versions of themselves. They bend to fit into other people's ideals of who and what they should be. They tame their brilliance to avoid judgment and gain approval. A long time ago, people attempted to tame the wilderness of Yellowstone National Park by eradicating predators. Taming the wilderness collapsed the ecosystem. But there's hope. In the mid-90s, 41 wolves were introduced into the park and with this, the ecosystem replenished itself and flourished. The wolves did nothing but be exactly who they are meant to be and do what they were born to do. So I say to you, be the wolf. Hello, hello everybody. Welcome to this episode of Be The Wolf. And today we're going to talk about a whole bunch of things, one of which is, is it ethically right to dodge the bullets of normalcy? I am here with somebody that's really amazing. I'm here with Cesar Becerra. We were having fun with his name earlier. Becerra. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Anyway, he is a historian, an author, an avid explorer. He has done a lot of really cool things, and he has created a life in that vein of being the wolf that is perfect for him, that is doing what he's born to do. Um, Caesar, would you like to tell us a little bit about the things that you do? Well, I'm kind of uh, one of those jumping jelly beans that can't really stay still very long. My kind of uh, next boss of mine says, Caesar, you have a short wick. And what he meant is after a month or two, and, and sometimes they calibrate to every three to five days, I got I to move on. I got to go somewhere. I got to do something else. So um, I do a lot. I, I write, I tour, I go on these crazy big intricate adventures. Um, yeah. And it's, it's just, uh, it feels normal to me. I know we're here talking about what is the normalcy of, of regular life, but, you know, I think that's a whole, you know, debate in and of itself. What is, what is normal? I mean, we're all a little weird, by the way, you know, we're all a little odd. So, um, but it's, it's a different, it's a, it's a tricky one. Um, I'm always a, kind of at a loss for what I do. I know what I do, but it's hard to fully explain but I think I'm a modern day nomad and I like to be on the move and I'm, I'm fascinated by making the work that I work, work on the go. Does that make sense? I, <laughs> I can that. elaborate. Well, <laughs> I know a little bit more about you than the rest of everybody else. So it makes sense to me, but I'm sure as we move forward in this conversation, it will make sense to everybody else. Now, one of the things, so you don't sit still you, I think you even told me that you could almost be considered professionally homeless because Definitely. you you don't have like a home. You bounce around, you have some home bases, but your background 
this is not what was expected of you. This was, you come from a background where they had ideas about how you should be. Tell us a little bit about that. So I grew up in Miami to parents of uh, Cuban descent, uh, immigrants that came to the United States. And obviously uh, that journey had a jarring kind of catapult away from Cuba and into Miami or United States life. And so when you go into anything as tragic as leaving not only your home behind or their parents leaving their businesses behind, splitting up families, uh, to be honest, you, you get a little traumatized. And I could understand yeah. why when you arrive here, you want to hold tight so that nothing else changes as radically and as abruptly as what you went through. So I, I get that. So I was on what we call a, a pretty short leash on two versions. One, just that rationale of being an Hispanic family, but also I was the firstborn. So I'm the oldest. And, and as you know, the oldest is put through, you know, nobody hands <laughs> out parenting manuals, but I think in general, the firstborn is put through a little bit more, uh, you know, short leashism than most people. And that was true with me that I had a nickname called uh, Cinderella. 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 I had to be back here at midnight, even into my oh. early 20s, with the exception as if I was at work, which is why I became a, a DJ early on in life. <laughs> the issue that I'm at work, but I'm also going out. So, and that's kind of a little bit of a process. Like I'm given rules that tell me I can't go from A to C only in this path. And I've always found ways around that. I'll be honest. My short leashism actually, and I actually love when kids are a little rebellious because one way you could read it is rebellious, but another way you can read it is creative processes of getting to your final, what you really want to do. And I think that has played really good in my life. I always figured out how to within the the tough challenges or even all out no's or doubts which we'll talk about later i love when people kind of throw doubts or or uh that actually can be a real great engine for like i'm gonna show them not in a terrible way but i actually think that some of my best biggest projects and journeys um i've always found a lot of good fuel when people say you're not gonna do that that's no way you're gonna you're not gonna finish that and i was like Ah, okay, we'll we'll come back to that <laughs> later. But grew up in Miami, and you know, Cubans in Miami are you know the the straight and narrow is you know stay here number one, uh, get married number two, have a house, have a car, have kids, and I have uh, I've failed on all those fronts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got I'm divorced, but you know, no kids, no real house. Uh, you know, I, I bop everything from friends. I rent rooms in Massachusetts to write. I crash at my sisters, my my parents. You know, I have places that I move to. I'm in the travel industry, so my boss takes care of me on the road. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of all, but it doesn't really phase me way. I long ago left that kind of nervousness of like, is this correct? Is this right? How long will this last? Is this something that is uh, just not towing the normal line of what it is to be responsible or adult, etc. But as I like to say, and even in times, you know, I think my parents say, I'm not, I'm not robbing banks. I'm not killing anybody. I'm not doing anything 
uh, horrible, and I'm actually doing some great things. I'm very proud of what I what I do and what I've done, and what I'm continuing to do, which is hard to explain. But we'll get in. We'll try to wrestle. With <laughs> One of the things that really strikes me is that thing about. Well, you can't say it. You say that I can't do it. Well, I'm going to show you because I think what happens to a lot of people as they're growing up, the boxes just get smaller and smaller and smaller about what they think they can do. And it's so scary to dip their toe outside of something that might be normal and they really don't follow what's in their heart. They don't follow what's true for them. And I was sometimes in thinking about the conversation that we had before we did this, I think about was that tight leash that your family had you on a blessing because it was so tight that you had to break out from what would have been so like, being in a place that's not who you really are. Well, first I want to say that, you know, it took them, my parents in particular, I think a long time to kind of, you know, I guess kind of give up on, you know, badgering about when are things going to change or when are you going to do, you know, they don't, they don't really ask me anymore. They, they know I'm busy as all hell. And, and, uh, and there's a lot of love there. I, I couldn't do half of this stuff without that, firm foundation. I'm very blessed with that foundation, but I, 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 I am stubborn. I'm very stubborn about, you know, sticking to things, uh, you know, and sometimes it's, it's out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I've taken journeys where I've literally been uh, in the middle of nowhere on, not on your regular, even on a trail. I've been in what we call the pink highways walking across America. Even there are moments that even I said, what in the hell are you doing in the middle of nowhere? My golden kind of zone is to be feel like an ant watching a long road disappear into nothing. And it can be a little jarring, but also it can be very free to your mind. Like you have nothing else to do than just to walk and think. I have a lot of time to walk and think. So collectively, I think I've walked now 6,000 miles in my life, both the Appalachian Trail uh, which is 2,160 miles. And then I've also walked from Key West to Phoenix, Arizona uh, over the course of 14 summers, uh, 14 years, really, but in the summer. So, you know, I've had moments where um, I've tested everything, you know, going out day after day, being in the middle of nowhere. It also pauses life for you to like, all right, when I finish this leg, what am I going to do? Am I on the right path? Should I do something else? Am I just whittling my time? Am I wasting my time? Um, you know, all these things, I'm, I'm, I'm human. All these questions come into my mind. It takes a while to what I call bust through that ceiling of doubt. Um, and I've actually had some of the most incredible moments of my life in the middle of nowhere in solitude. Um, it's, uh, it's not for everybody. A lot of people, you know, always ask, you know, isn't it get lonely out there? And then, well, yeah, you know, way, but in a way I I'm in the zone. I'm in, I'm in a beautiful settings. Uh, sometimes just, just impressive how, how big the planet is, even though I'm here in the United States. Um, it's a rush. It's a rush, but it does give me kind of a, a moment to think. Uh, the other place I think a lot is on a plane ride. I, <laughs> 
I think if I, I'm on more, and I'm on a lot of plane rides, probably 30 or 40 a year. Uh, so I move around a lot, at least two or three times a month. And um, I do my best thinking and planning and organizing on a two-hour flight to, you know, somewhere. Um, yeah, one of the things that really strikes me in those long walks, like I've told you that I walked the Camino de Santiago, which is 500 miles. And yeah. I spend a lot of time by myself. I meditate a lot. There's something about being with yourself, being with your own mind. And a lot of people say they can't do it because they can't sit still. Well, here, when you're walking, you at least get to move, but their mind will drive them crazy, so to speak. But we do a lot of healing and we do a lot of figuring out what are the things that are not in alignment with us. So in that vein of being who you're born to be, I would suspect that those long walks really kept you kind of on the path of what's right for you. Does that seem to resonate for you? Yeah, actually, some I don't do yoga, but someone told me one day, no, you're doing yoga because you're doing something very kind of, you know, focused, meditation-like, uh, repetitive in some ways, you know, moving. I, I go, I, there were days that I, I generally do 10 to 15 miles a day, and sometimes I've done more. Um, and I go into this place I call the zone. And the zone is, I, get, I wake up out of my tent, start the day really early, maybe six, seven o'clock, I'll head out and it'll feel like it's 20 minutes later and I'll look down on my watch and it's five o'clock in the afternoon. And it's like, what? That's happened quite a bit. I mean, it seems like it's, uh, uh, you know, arduous and all, but really actually everything I've tackled and done in retrospect has been a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. And that includes when I say 14 summers, I've been some serious heat. I used to actually love, I don't, I'm not a big fan of it now, but I used to love detoxing in the heat. Um, I, I once walked in 113 degree weather coming into Phoenix and I, and my shoes were melting. Uh, and it's weird. And, and, and there were moments where I'm like, oh, I got to get out of here, but I kind of like it. I remember being in Palm Springs because I did a little piece in, in California coming in towards Arizona. Uh, so I really only have, Arizona and a little bit of California to go to finish the coast to coast hiking. And I remember every uh, pond or the beginning of every uh, development had like a little basin of water with some fountains and stuff. So I take off my watch, my wallet, and I just jump in there. And it was so hot that like seven or 10 minutes later, I was bone dry. I mean, I jumped in the fountain. Nobody yeah. cared because no one was outside. So I would just jump in these fountains. Um, and it'd be bone dry 10 minutes later. Was that, that's how hot, I mean, so at 113 degrees, the pavement is 151, just so you know. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. Crazy. And that kind, and that kind of heat, you don't even re really sweat because your sweat is evaporating so fast that you don't, it's, it's dangerous. <laughs> yeah. 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 Now I, I want to tell you, I got into walking and I guess into yoga and in certain walking these long paths. <laughs> In part because I was once a king of all couch potatoes. I was a little bit uh, way overweight and, and lazy. And 
I got type two diabetes. It changed my life for the better. I've I've had a habit of of every any and there hadn't been one or two or three negative things ever happened in my life, but I've always spun them into something that later I said, wow, if I hadn't been diagnosed with diabetes, I wouldn't have hiked the Appalachian Trail. I would have walked across America, um, you know. And that's that's also my positive nature of things. Um, in fact, I don't really worry about anything anymore today except what's going to happen in my future health. We all worry about that. But, you know, and then you got to also then say, well, why am I worrying? I mean, you just got to move on and, and do things. But I got, I got into all that through that, but there was still that adventurous spirit though. The other flip side is I actually love to explore in a slow way, not in a quick, fast paced way. I like to slow things. I don't even like the bicycle as a form of travel a lot of people say why don't you ride a bike uh, it's it's too fast for me i actually like to slow down i mean i walk fast but uh, you know compared to a bicycle you know I, I love that and um i attribute that to my early days of my life my mom always walked us to school she was a teacher and we were a block and a half away from the elementary school that she taught at that we went to so we walked to school i don't know for years for years, maybe six, seven years or six years, at least walked to school. And I think I discovered that back later in my life, that um, the very thing I got kind of introduced to would, would be something that would fuel my, my journeys, you know, and, and it was, it was me. That's actually kind of listening to me. I mean, we're, you know, who has time to walk that much that, that in itself is dodging a bullet of normalcy, you know, um, when people hike the Appalachian Trail, they generally hike for six months. My hike was a year and 23 days uh, through four seasons. I always like to do things differently, too. I'm not interested in the same, you know, way it's been done. But I walked I walked at a pace that uh, defied one normalcy, which is getting blisters on the Appalachian Trail. I never got a blister because of the pace that I was going to. And the blisters are just a reality, yeah. you know. But I had one hot spot. I quickly cut <laughs> oh. back my shoe off. But it didn't rub enough to make it into a blister and it healed. So um, that's great. So sometimes slow, uh, you know, has an impact. Who wants blisters? I mean, walking <laughs> smarter, walking smarter, not harder, living smarter, not harder. I mean, this is a totally. pattern here, you know. And um, yeah, one of the things that really in the work I do with people is you you end up slowing down, but in the long run, you actually go faster because you're not doing a whole bunch of stuff because you're in some emotion. You've cleared the emotional content and you can just be. And when you're not trying to put out fires all the time, because you're not starting them because you're trying to put out fires that you started, that you can't, that, 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 that. <laughs> You actually get to move at a pace that's calm. You get to be present, enjoy things. And it's super powerful. When I started slowing down, I got way more done. And what I got done was done well. When I had space in the time, like I meditate one to two hours every day. I do some writing, I go to the park, I sit there for 30 minutes to an hour. I have, I give my brain a lot of space to think 
and flush out what's not actually serving me for the day. So when I start the day, it's productive. It's forward moving. It's not distracting. And when you're moving at a pace where you can actually be present and enjoy things, I think that's so beautiful. You know, we're li- I love what you just said. We're living in a time so much hitting us and so much information and so much at our fingertips that take us away from the very thing that we need to be doing. And you do have to take some drastic measures. I, I take two drastic measures in my life. Number one is I actually, for this whole year, have been renting a room at a friend's house in uh, South Hadley, Massachusetts, who actually builds puppets. I live in a puppet land part-time. But I get away from Miami as I have to take drastic measures because Miami is a very fast-paced city. And even if I didn't have a phone, and we'll get to the phone in a second, but, you know, I, I get barraged by invitations and projects and let's preserve this and that, which is flattering and fun, but I will not get any writing done, which I'm, 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 I'm really more, I'm almost close to being writing almost as a full-time uh, job now, which is amazing to say. But, uh, you know, the other thing I do is, um, so I have to get away sometimes really 10 days a month. I'm in a position where everybody knows I'm gone. They can't get to me. They can't book me for anything. And, uh, and also just the pace of life. So for those 10 days, I can step out of that wonderful house in South Hadley and take a long walk and just very little traffic, very little noise, very little anything. It puts me in a different, I get more writing done there. Uh, now I also have something called, we call a flip phone. I mean, I know this is like a blast from the past. I also have a smartphone. However, this smartphone is not connected to the outside world unless I sync up with wi-fi somewhere but when i leave a place this is the only communication i have now i have something called a to-do list and a lot of people have to-do lists i get a lot more done because i'm not hit with the dings and rings and blings all day long that could set me sometimes fine it's important sets me off on a different tangent you know so drastically and i know people say well you can just put it on silent or not have the notifications on well there was a study that showed that just a phone that is turned off in front of you because it has that power of what if what's happening if i turn it back on has an impact on your level of focus uh there was another study done that said that if you get distracted depending on the person it can go from nine to 13 minutes to get back to the level of focus it had before you were distracted so we're living in the mother of all ages of distractions i don't even think we we take i think we take for granted how many distractions are hit hit us each day um there's a lot you really have to take some drastic measures so i for me and i know myself these things work very well they're very they're very efficient to distract you so i had to take the drastic uh, level of, you know, the only time, the only thing I can actually call out on is this, but I can't do anything once I leave a zone of Wi-Fi, you know, when I'm walking when I'm somewhere else, when I'm traveling, I have to engage and make sure I turn on when I need to. And it actually focuses me on when I want to engage on the email and on the messengers and get, you know, caught up for a bunch of different things. Um, that's helped a lot. That's helped a lot. Cause I, 
I love to read. I love to learn. I love to know what's going on. And, um, but it can be overwhelming. It can be overwhelming when you're that third. I'm a thirsty guy. I like, I like learning and I like knowing what's going on. So, so those are the, kind of the two stories about, you know, uh, bullets of normalcy. Sometimes you have to shut them off in a way where you can't even possibly do so if you're asked to do so in like, let's say a, a game show way. I can't, I couldn't do that. <laughs> I was, and there are times when I'm walking across America where I'm, I'm in zones that even if I did have a phone, there is no communications on that level. I have a, a spot satellite unit, but it has no way to communicate. Even though there is a model to buy that you can communicate today. I don't, I only have the one where only on an emergency, I can send out a signal. So talk about peaceful process. There are sometimes in my life days that go by that I am cut off from it all, which is really rare. So I challenge everybody out there to shut off their phone, lock it up for four days. See if you could do it. <laughs> I was, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about you know, the younger listeners, of course, won't understand this, but those of us that are a little bit older will remember going to the mailbox. Did somebody write me a letter? Like, I have love letters from high school and college. Sure. <laughs> that these things where you're getting that little dopamine pop, which is what is the phone is all about. It's about the, oh, does the email or the thing, it's a little dopamine pop. Or then there, be, then there came the answer machines. <laughs> it's the same thing. And then when you could call your answering machine, that was a thing. <laughs> but yeah, I so get it. You weren't always such the avid explorer, though. As you said, you know, you used to be kind of a couch potato, but there was something that you said to your now ex wife, of course, that was kind of a joke. And then yeah. you ended up doing it. And this kind of really broke you out of the box of your Miami normalcy. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, and I have heard a thank. Um, so uh, when I got married, uh, my then uh, now ex-wife, uh, Maud Dillingham, who's a journalist, uh, told me, listen, I, I know you. You kind of, you got a lot going on here. You never, I don't see you ever really leaving a lot. But if we get married... We gotta get the fuck out of here. <laughs> we gotta get out of here. And uh, and to that I said, well, listen, why don't we just go to all fifty states and get it out of the way? And I was totally joking. She called my bluff and said, well, wait a second, that's exactly what I've always wanted to do. And all of a sudden, it was real. But like another friend says, you know, an idea will come across the brain pan, and Caesar will always blow it way out of proportion. So now we're designing not only a road trip to all fifty states, but the mother of all road trips in a 1979 Chevy Malibu classic station bag dressed as an American Ooh. flag. We're collecting items for the millennium for Florida International University's collection of America at the millennium. And yeah, and on and on newsletter and, and, and visits to this. And yeah, it was, uh, it was, but that was an impactful real turn in the road for me because I went from, you know, I was living in a apartment rent-free by the way. I was the caretaker of the Women's Club of Coconut Grove. Couldn't believe my luck there. And I had filled it up with everything I thought I needed to have to be kind of successful, or you need this, you need that. 
you know, you get you get messages through life of what you think you need. Um, and then I went on this road trip, and after a year, thought, wait a second, I just spent a year with just the things in my car. Well, I came back to some of the stuff that I'd put away, and I looked at it, and I'm like, what the hell? What am I going to do with all this stuff? I just proved not only that I can live a year with just things in my car, but I'm really a little bit happier without having all those things. And that gets exacerbated later when I hike the Appalachian Trail and put a backpack on my back, live on the road for a year and 23 days, come back and said, and actually, ironically, I had stuffed everything I had in the station wagon, which is on exhibit at a museum, came back <laughs> and said, what am I going to do with this stuff? And here I just spent a year with just, you know, this backpack. So that, that, that will help, you know, kind of free you from things. Now I'd still have things, but they're all now paper and book related. I don't have a couch or a, you know, a lamp or all, you know, the, 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 the prototypical things that you would call things. You know, it's interesting because people buy things because of emotions. People hang on to things because of emotions and Letting go of that stuff, you start to realize that you're okay just as you are, that this human being, this body you're in, that you have so many resources within you, that you can face so much without having all of this stuff to be in armor, to protect you, to make you feel safe, because all of that stuff comes from deep within you. And You're you right. actually, Good. you actually help people get rid of their stuff sometimes. Yeah, I have a totally not ever been even put on a business card job. Uh, specialty, if you will, I help people downsize their things. So I get a call out of the blue sometimes, and this is how it will go. Uh, kind of sheepishly, um, is, is, is this Caesar? And I'll say, yes. Uh, yeah, I, I was told I needed to, I need to call you. I said, okay. Who told you to call me? And then it will generally be one of the many people I have helped uh, through the years downsize and organize their lives. And I've, I've I've organized things for some very interesting people uh, as far away as L.A. and the Hamptons, uh, uh, in the middle of the country, all, all over the South. You name it. I, I probably have done 20 fascinating jobs of helping people downside. And part of it is that I actually do. I want to make very clear. I do love stuff. So I still like to play with stuff. I'm fascinated by things. I'm a historian, so I like to play. Uh, but it's different when you're playing with other people's things. Um, and it could be quite uh, jarring, too. I, I had one client fire me the first days. I went too quick for his taste. Mm. And and I, I was okay. I said, listen, I understand. No problem. And then a day later, he called me back. Said, listen, listen, I'm sorry. You just, it, was, it was so fat. I couldn't believe. Come on back. Because he knew he was in trouble. You know. Right. The stuff and, is emotional. <laughs> and stuff, for, for the people that I have worked for, stuff can be... I call it the second weight to stuff. There's the, the weight of the object and then the weight of the object on your ability to move forward, even creatively just, and I'm, I'm that, I got to 
my papers have to be organized for my books and stuff before I get super creative. So even I understand that, but I'm removed from that. So it's, 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 it's good to have somebody to come in and, and I have a lot of foolproof ways to do it on a slow take. I sometimes bring copious amounts of tables and I'll put, if they're really hard to, to, to work with and they're really being too, like it, I can understand is we're not going to get anywhere. I'll actually put all one slab of things on one table and all I'll, I'll bring him or her into the room and say, listen, all you have to do is grab an object from this table and put it on this empty table. And when you're finished with that, you can leave the room again. And I keep this up. So I simplify it down to the nitty gritty. What do you really need? But it can be overwhelming if you don't take those bite-sized chunks. And I've been at jobs where it's been, it has almost cracked me. I did a job, a five-bay garage that had every fun tool and car and gizmo and boat you could and i almost went crazy on that was a 12-day job but i i i did it and lo and behold uh it worked i came back a month or two later and he had kept it pretty darn clean you know i mean he saw how much it took he saw how much it, he had to pay for you know this to happen um and uh it, you know it, it's uh but even i and sometimes go to that level of, wow, the stuff weighs on me, even if it's not mine. You know, when I tackle seriously huge jobs, you know, I've tackled jobs with hoarders, walking into houses where there were paths throughout, etc. But also it's fun. I get to dig through and find all sorts of interesting stuff. I did a gentleman's home in New York, uh, in New York City, and it was under the last rent controlled apartments in Greenwich Village. And it was a railroad style apartment, you know, room after room after room. And it was like an Indiana Jones moment. I mean, there were things in there. I mean, there were copious amount. There was one section that had stacks of stamps through the year, sheets of stamps, you know, and coins. And every time I'd move something, it felt I could have I could have been lanched down. And uh, your historian self must have just been like, Ooh. oh yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Ooh. Love it. I love it. So. So stuff can weigh on you for sure. Yes. Okay. So you write books. You've written books on some of the trails you've walked. You do art projects. You are a speaker. You are a historian, a Florida historian, Floridian historian. <laughs> Am I getting no, that right? Historian. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And of course, we know about the adventurer, the explorer. Did I miss anything? Is there something else in there? Well, I've been thinking about that, the whole writing thing. I think, I think more, I'm more of a storyteller. I love telling stories. Um, and, and they mainly come out from, you know, nonfiction history books that I write. Uh, but uh, lately, I've been freestyling a few things that will come out in the future that are uh, taking that grand step, which is for me hard, not for a lot of writers, but for me to write something based kind of like on things, but not necessarily fact check it and put the real thing, you know, kind of fiction based. And so I'm writing a book now and I'm also writing a novel. Um, so I've been writing a novel for a while. It's hard. It's it's actually harder than to write all the facts as I'm, I'm, I can be pretty fastidious as a historian. You think, oh, well, you know, someone's going to look this up. But when you're writing fiction, well, it doesn't have to be, what am I worried about? But I still worry. 
Um, but uh, my latest book um, is taking me to Australia in a month uh, on a book tour. And it's a story, a beautiful story of a, a woman who has been marginalized in our history books named Mary Brickle, uh, the founder, one of the founders of Miami. However, if you look deeply, she's been, her role has been minimalized and I'm kind of trying to bring her back up to her initial role. And so it's called Orange Blossom 2.0. And it's the retelling of the story of the fabled story of the orange blossoms being plucked out after a freeze to show that Miami was frostless given to this railroad magnet named Henry Flagler. And he magically brought his railroad down. It was far more complicated than that. Far better story. But it's taken this, this book has taken 25 years. Not that I've been working for 25 years on it. But 25 years ago, I did the first ever exhibit on, on Mary Brickle and kind of shedding light on her. But it's taken 25 years to find, not just I, but other historians find things. And it's slowly working its way finally into a searchable thing. Who was Mary Brickle? Founding of Miami. And it's starting to see the two sides. And the great thing is there's two mothers of Miami. And I think that's wonderful. It's, it's, it's the major American city with two women that were amazing at a time where they couldn't vote they're doing stuff they're going against these huge magnets of they were being the wolf they were <laughs> oh my goodness i wish we could bring mary brickle back and interview her here she was a wolf and so was julia tuttle the co-mother in miami they were both wolves absolutely i mean they were really yeah. it's 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 um yeah, I felt the need that it's it's high time. I just got tired of her being ignored, her role being ignored. She was a badass for sure, for sure. Awesome. So, uh, so your what did when you started doing all these things outside of the box? You, what did what were your parents saying to you? What were they thinking? Were they freaking out? Well, in their own way, they tried to kind of guide me to a, a more uh, practical life. And we, we chuckle now uh, with the adage that if they just let me do what I wanted to do, like one path was art school. I wanted to go into art school or just, you know, I would have probably been an accountant now, you know. So in a way, I have them to thank because that rebelliousness uh, got me you know, to come back to some of these things later. Um, and uh, And one thing I fell back on is my love of history, you know, uh, but uh, you ask anybody other than, you know, going into a professorship or teaching, uh, there's no money in that. So I've, I've, I'm fascinated that I make a life based on, on dealing with history, teaching history, sharing stories, uh, actually inhabiting. I, I do costume you know, living history reenactments of certain characters, uh, you know, so I, I really live and breathe it. Uh, and actually, I look at the world, especially Miami, when I'm driving down anywhere or walking down anywhere, everything looks to me like a black and white sepia tone shot um, because I know what was there. I know the images of what, how this started. Um, and that's a double-edged sword. I know a lot about Miami. When you know a lot about your city, it can be a real love-hate relationship, especially in a place that's changing so much being developed so much, moving so fast. Um, you know, it's, um, it's a little bit of the reason why I have to leave sometimes. It's, it's hard to be here all the time. You know, it is a, and you're sitting in traffic most of the time, to be honest. Today to get uh, to here took me an hour and a half of just brutal traffic. I mean, something that would take 20 minutes without in, at three in the morning, you know, takes forever. And I, I don't know, I just, I'm not wired to sit in that 
uh, zone of, you know, yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it's like having having that space to move, but move at the pace that you choose. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's what would you tell somebody that's really struggling with do I step outside of what's expected of me? Do I, you know, get married, go to college, do all the things that I'm supposed to do, what would you tell them? Well, I'm not against uh, people who inhabit different lives than me. I'm actually, believe it or not, I'm most fascinated with people's houses. I'm, I'm just fascinated <laughs> with how people live, you know. Um, so I'm not immune to that. But um, there will be a period of time when you start breaking out and doing something different. Um, it'll feel weird. You'll actually feel like this paranoid, you're on the run from the CIA in a way. You know, you'll feel, mm -hmm. for many years I felt, you know, I call it, when, when will the boom come down? When will the party stop type thing? When will the, right. um, but that's all in my, looking back, it's all in my head. You will find out that, most things you're worried about or projects or dreams end up being a lot easier than you initially thought. You will be caught if you're in the zone of what you dream to do, aspire to do, have a hunch to do. You're not always going to, by the way, I have a lot of great failures. You know, it's not all roses and all that. Uh, oh gosh, I once attempted to have the largest, uh, car wash ever at the beginning of this road trip and i failed i failed so miserably it's not even funny uh but you know it's i look back in that the coolest thing about that i had to get a permit to get a water main opened you know and they gave me the yeah. latch to it and i'm like holy hell i have a latch to a water main like <laughs> so had i not tried that now i walked i see a water you know whatever you know yeah and i said I know how to do that. I mean, you know, I, would, I didn't know. Um, but, you know, you will you will find out that things, everything is an education. Whether you fail at it or, you know, make it happen, it will all get kind of filed in there, you, you know, filed in there. Um, so, yeah, go out and do it. It's, uh, uh, it's a one-shot, one-way trip, and you might as well fill it up with everything you want to do. Absolutely. I I have the mindset that the universe is working for you and that failure, you might've learned how to get a permit. Maybe you didn't know how to do that before. And the next time you had to do it, it was so much easier and it saved you. Who knows? You never know. I always yeah. think that what's happening to to you right now is probably setting you up for success. In the oh, world. I have another great thing to tell your audience. Yeah. Tell them. Not your Tell audience. us. We're all, I think we're all in the same boat audience type thing. You know, our, yeah. our, our dreamers out there. Um, basically, open your mouth and tell as many people as possible. This is going to be the, the crux of it all. Uh, if you open, you're not going to be able to know what you need to know to live your dreams until you start opening your mouth. You need people. All my, pro I'm not a solo. You're seeing me now solo on one camera there, but 
it takes more than a village. It takes a lot of people. I collaborate constantly. Um, and if you put yourself out there and say, I'm going to do this, now you're not only stuck in this position where you've made a pronouncement, but you also put it out there for all the people that are going to help you. And just, but, but I want you to listen to those naysayers, vacuum all that in. That's just as important. And it's scary. It's scary to finally say, I'm going to do this. Um, yeah. So when I started walking across America and I said I would do it, uh, you know, it, it, and then people started talking about it and, and, and things started you know, being published and I'm going to do it. Now I've got to go out and do it. Um, <laughs> so it, you got to put yourself sometimes not only out there, but accountable to try to do, you know, what you intend to do. And so open your mouth, but, you know, listen for the folks that are going to help you and the folks that say you're, you're freaking crazy. Um, all that, all that's going to be helpful. Uh, Cause I certainly, every project I start, man, right now, all I do on a, on a new project that I have is I just, I'm just telling everybody, what do you think of this? You know about this? How do I get this? How do you know, have you heard about how to lift this thing up in the sky, 130 feet, you know, what do we got out there? You know, and, mm -hmm. and one person leads to another person, another person, after a while, you know, you have all your answers and then yep. you have to organize it and go forth and do it. <laughs> and I think the thing that is really important for people to know, the naysayers, the people that are talking smack about you doing whatever, following your dream, they're talking about themselves. They're not talking about you. They are really upset that they shut their life down, that they're not going after their dreams. And so you doing that is painful to them because it is a reflection of them not being the wolf, not being who they're born to be. So they're trying to bring you down because they don't want to look at their own pain. So don't take that shit personally, y'all. <laughs> Um, Caesar, how do we get your books? How do we get on your listening for your historian stuff? How do we how do we do all the things? Well, all the things are uh, luckily on uh, soflowweird.com. S-O-F-L-O weird.com. Uh, a wonderful website and podcast that a friend of mine, Mia, which I really call my boss, uh, has set up for a lot of other great weirdos. Uh, but also really serious stories on there and everything's on there. My books, my projects, uh, you know, I'm about to try to build a, a ship that's 170 feet long by 130 foot tall uh, for, for a journey around the world. So if anybody is interested in resurrecting a ship from 1924, uh, call me and uh, email me from there and let's get dreaming on it, you know? Uh, but yeah, you, all my books are there and um, calendar. I, I, you know, I love to to do things and put myself out there. And um, that's where you go. SoFloWeird.com. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. And Thank for you. those of you that want to jump in and get those jobs that they love and connect and be who they're born to be and put that out in the world with their career path, um, go to book a call with Jenea. G-E-N-E-A, and we'll get started on that. Caesar, this has been so much fun. Man, thank you so much. I'm so glad you're doing this. This is important work. So important. Work. I, 
it's so important for people to know that they can walk their own path. And thank you for help lighting the way for some of us. So welcome. So welcome. All right. Goodbye, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Be The Wolf. Please take a moment to rate, share, and follow this podcast so that together we can inspire others to be the wolf.